Hope y'all are doing well this week. I know the G3 crowd is back from, uh, from Atlanta, and I hear the conference went, went really well uh, this week, so I'm glad that a number of our people got to, got to be a part of that. Uh, we are uh, in the last week on the P of Tulip, so we're, this is our last week on Perseverance of the Saints. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 3, and we want to spend a little bit more time in Hebrews because we didn't get to a few things we wanted to touch on last Sunday, and then our plan is to make our way over to... First uh, John for just uh, toward the toward the latter half of Sunday school today. Jerry, can you uh, open us in prayer? Yeah, I'd love to. Father, we are so grateful for uh, these incredible passages. Lord, thank you that you, through your word, have given us all we need for life and godliness. You've thoroughly equipped us for every good work. And uh, Lord, we would pray uh, today that you would once again use these uh, passages that are both warnings and great for assurance to assure those who um, already love and know the Lord Jesus and to warn those who, who don't of, uh, um, of pending disaster. And so, Lord, I ask that you would use your word uh, as you do, sharpen a double-edged sword uh, to pierce our hearts today, um, to encourage and convict us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And just as a reminder, uh, next Sunday is our last week on the Whole Providence series and so I just want to say again, sincerely, if there are any lingering questions that you have that maybe haven't been addressed or that you would, you would like a little bit more about a particular issue or passage of Scripture or an application or implication of anything that's been discussed that you've thought about, please email us. Uh, you, can, you can email me, mmcandrew at wcalions.org, or you can email uh, Greg or Jerry or Scott, and just uh, you can send them in through the website, however you want to get those to us. But we would be more than happy to take some questions next Sunday as we uh, wrap up our series then. And uh, we're going to go ahead and jump in to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. And uh, if you remember this passage, I'll just say a quick word about this before we start reading. It's a long section in Hebrews. Hebrews sort of breaks down into these long chunks of, of, of particular topics. And really, chapters 3 and 4, most of chapters 3 and 4, is the author in the New Testament era writing this book. He looks back to the Old Testament. And he's using an example from the Old Testament. And he's saying, is it possible for a large group of people to start off well spiritually, at least look like they're starting off well, and tragically end poorly? The answer is yes. And his example that he plays off of for a full almost two chapters is a quotation from Psalm 95, which goes back to the wilderness wandering. Did a large number of people, we're talking, what, was it 600,000 men? So you're talking a couple million people left Egypt through the Red Sea? How many of that first generation made it into the promised land? Two. Not even Moses, right? Only two. Uh, who was it? Caleb and Joshua, and Joshua made it in there. Uh, but what we see is the vast majority of that first generation that started off so well, so powerfully through the plagues and through the Red Sea and the Passover lamb, they looked like they were committed truly to Yahweh alone. And within a short time at Mount Sinai, with getting Aaron to help them. Remember Aaron? Hey, Aaron, can you, can you make us a golden calf like the gods of Egypt? And they're bowing down to the golden calf. And who knows what all was going on at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and he shatters them because the people have broken the covenant. So Moses physically breaks the covenant stones and says, this is absolutely unacceptable. The Lord is going to throw us out if we're not repentant here. And he goes back up and pleads and the Lord shows mercy. But the author here is using that wilderness generation as a warning to Christians today who we call ourselves believers to say, we must not just start well. By God's grace, we must continue in the faith and we must end well. 
because Jesus said only those who endure to the end will be saved. So part of perseverance of the saints is we believe true, genuine, born-again, blood-bought Christians, true believers, will always persevere in faith to the end of their life. That doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean we never fail, never stumble, never sin, don't have to get back up and repent again. That's, that's daily life for, for us. But at the end of the day, we don't throw in the towel on Christianity. We don't turn away from Jesus as our one and only Savior. We persevere in the faith. And as I think you quoted or someone quoted, uh, Piper said uh, over the years, the only reason I wake up the next morning and know that I'm a Christian is because God holds on to me. God, God mm -hmm. holds me fast. That's how we wake up this morning a Christian and, and not uh, bored with our faith and ultimately rejecting our, our faith. So with all that in mind, and there's, there's a lot we could read, uh, let's just jump in here at uh, verse 7. Greg, could you read 7 through 15? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So maybe, Greg, I could ask you this question. We've talked about how perseverance is a community project, mm -hmm. and you see that here in this text about the one, one another aspect yeah. here, especially verses 12 and 13. What does it mean when we talk about uh, perse persevering in the faith being a community project? Uh, I mean, just simply put, it means we need one another to persevere. We need the church. We need other believers. Um, I mean, we've used the, the illustration uh, of, of, you know, the ember from the fire that, you know, when it's with the rest of them in the fire, it stays hot and burning. If you get that ember away, uh, it starts to cool off. But once you get it back, to, you know, with the other embers, you know, it's funny. It's, it's the fire that heats them, but also the other embers as they're hot. And, you know, what that pictures is, is we need the, the faith, we need the, to, to see the faith, we need to see the repentance, we need to see the struggles and the overcoming in the lives of other believers, because what that does is God uses that as examples, very clear examples for us that, hey, you can make it through, you can persevere too. Um, and, you know, God, you know, by God's grace, obviously, He uses our own lives to encourage other people, but we need to speak the word to each other. We need to pray together. We need to fellowship um, and spend time together. Um, and that's, that is one of the biggest, I think, underestimated means mm -hmm. to staying true in the faith or true to Christ to the end. When a believer gets away from the church, that is one of the most dangerous places they can be in because they are, they are severing themselves from one of the biggest means of grace, if you will, um, that God will use to keep their hearts where they need to be, their thoughts where they need to be, their focus, and, and everything like that. I think those six words there, Greg, that's good. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we need each other, because that just, I mean, I find that in my own life. If I'm not having good fellowship with others, 
uh, that is quicker to, to happen, to be hardened by the sin's deceitfulness. In fact, hold your spot and turn to the left to Ephesians chapter 4 just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. This is kind of the middle of the, of the chapter. Look especially, it speaks about the gifts to the church and other things, but look, look especially at verse 15 of Ephesians 4. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love. This is to all of us. This is to everybody in this room, right? We are to speak the truth in love to each other. Speaking the truth in love, we, that's the corporate local church, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's everybody, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, that's every member, right? When, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Mm. Do you see what a vital role everybody in the church plays in the growth of the individual members? We speak the truth to each other. We speak it in love. We don't gossip. We don't slander. We don't lie. If we ever do, we repent of it and we confess it. What do we do? We, can, we, we love each other well, and God uses our mutual sharing truth with each other over time through countless Bible studies, phone calls. Papa Fred sending me Spurgeon's morning and evening text message on certain mornings where, you know, you, you, you read this and it, it encourages your heart. Well, he sends a, a pipe, I mean, he'll always send me a, a video of somebody on YouTube about fighting sin or about whatever it might be, encouragement in Christ. What is that? That's speaking truth to one another, that we might build each other up in love, and we are encouraged over and over over the course of years and decades and what happens? The church gets stronger. The sinews and the ligaments get stronger. The whole body grows because it's being built up in love. So I do think that it's a community project. Anything else on, on that point? So back to Hebrews. Let's look at verse 16 of, of Hebrews 3. And, and here's that point that we get to of, of we've got to persevere. Verse 16 of Hebrews 3. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So we see here a warning for continuance. Let's look back at verse 14 one more time, because I don't want to miss this verse in Hebrews, because I think it's so clear on this issue. Yeah, clear. One more time. Verse 14, for we have come, that's present tense, we have come to share in Christ. How do we know? How do we know that we've come to share in Christ right now? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Anyone who gives up on Jesus never truly had Jesus. That's what this verse is saying. If I'll put a Don Carson quote on the screen about this very verse. Carson says, close attention to the tenses in Hebrews 3.14 uh, reveals an extra ingredient in this verse. We have become, in the past, partakers of Christ if we now in the present hold firmly uh, to the confidence we had at first. It follows from this verse that although perseverance is mandated, li listen to this, although perseverance in the faith is mandated, it's commanded, it is also the evidence of what has taken place in the past. Perseverance is the evidence that we know Christ. If persevering shows we have already come to share in Christ, it can only be because sharing in Christ has perseverance for its inevitable fruit. If I'm truly a believer now, I will truly be a believer tomorrow. 
If I'm truly a believer tomorrow, it proves I was a believer now. And if I, if I end up throwing it all out, uh, that's when you say, well, then you never truly had Christ uh, to begin with. Any thoughts on, on this text? Um, struggles and hardships are the means by which God, I think, strengthens our hold on our confidence. Because that's what he says. You know, this is our responsibility here. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Um, God will take us through all sorts of struggles, trials, temptations, seasons. And what's the goal of that is to strengthen our confidence, to strengthen our, as he says, we hold that confidence firm. Our, our grip should be stronger the longer we walk with Jesus. And trials and tribulations and sufferings um, have a way of strengthening our hold on Christ like nothing else will. Um, God oftentimes will empty us of our confidence in so many other things so that we see how good Jesus is and we hold all the more strongly to him because of that. And so struggling and suffering and trials, um, we need to see that as the means by which God strengthens us. It's, it's not God necessarily usually not punishing us, but God helping us grow so that we don't let go of Christ. I mean, ultimately, we, we trust in him not letting go of us. But as far as we're concerned, like we have to hold on to him and God's going to ensure that our grip gets stronger. It's good. All right, let's turn to chapter 10 of Hebrews again. And we barely got to touch on this just a little bit last Sunday. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm, I'm just going to reread part of it from last week, uh, starting in verse 23. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Uh, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, again, do you see this repeats the point from chapters three and four? We need each other, don't we? Because... The day is drawing near. See, the day, that's, the, that's final judgment. So what do we need? We need to encourage one another so that we persevere in the faith. God uses us as means to encourage and fan into flame our, our faith so that we're enabled to endure to the end so that we are not in the habit of, of failing to meet together, which would not prepare us uh, for the day drawing near. Verse 26, and again, I think the sinning deliberately here is a full-blown rejection of Christ. Uh, we talked about that last Sunday. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jerry, any, any words about the warning aspect? Because this is one of the most severe warnings in, I mean, it's got to be in the, in the book of Hebrews for sure, but in the New Testament generally. Yeah, for if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. I think we'll see this as Scripture interprets Scripture. In 1 John, we'll see a better uh, maybe um, another passage that explains that, that would be the practice of continuing to sin without repentance. And so all of us, you know, if we just took that one verse out of context, would say, 
uh-oh, I have sinned deliberately before. I think we all have. But that's not that a one-time thing. It isn't that you lose your salvation over that. But uh, I knew a guy in uh, Bible college that wore a little spur on the front of his pocket. And uh, that was because of verse 24 uh, in his translation. And let us consider how we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So he'd see his little spur and he would say, that's what I want to do all day. Spur one another on, spur one another on. So that's the warning is there to encourage us to uh, help each other. Well, and I mean, like you said, the, the sinning deliberately here isn't, um, isn't just any sin. This is a wholesale rejection of Christ. Um, knowing clearly what the gospel says, knowing the, the, you know, Jesus is held forth as the only way, everything's fulfilled in him, he's our only hope for forgiveness, eternal life, and we see that, we hear that at least, we know it intellectually, and we say no. Like, that's what's going on here, because he, he goes from the lesser to the greater in verse 28. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, God's chief revelation was uh, what he revealed through Moses, the, the law of Moses. And it's like, if you set that aside, and that's not just saying, man, you know, I, I screwed up and I broke, I broke this command, you know, th this law here, you know, that's it for me. No, it's, it's the person who says, I am rejecting what Moses gave us. I am rejecting God's revelation through Moses. So that's the lesser you go to the greater, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And what he's saying is, what we have offered to us in Christ is far greater than anything Israel had with Moses. I mean, he is the Savior. He is the fulfillment of all that God was promising. And so if we know at least at, at an academic intellectual level, the hope that is laid out before us. And we at one point say, yes, that's mine. But then we say, no, I'm actually going to reject that. The author's like, you don't want to imagine how bad the punishment's going to be because you had everything you needed to be with God forever and you turned away from it. Um, and that's what he's getting at here. It's not like, if you, you know, even today, if, if you you know, said a cross word to somebody in your family or you just had a bad attitude. He's not saying, and you harbored it longer than you should have. Um, and then you're like, oh man, you know, you did that delivery. He's not talking about that because built into our, the gospel and built, or built into the new covenant is God's work to bring us to repentance. The person being talked about here is someone who does not want to repent and will not repent. Um, they're going to stay in their rejection of Christ and they don't want to come back. That's good. So let's turn to 1 John, and we'll start at the very end of the book of chapter 5, verse 13, which uh, John tells us the reason he wrote the letter, and this is a great reason. It's to give us assurance, who, those who know the Lord. Uh, I love it when, when the Bible writer just tells us exactly why he wrote something. So 1 John 5, 13, there's no question about it. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So I'll just say, if, if you're struggling with assurance of salvation at any point in your life, um, there is a book of the Bible written specifically for you. It is First John. Uh, it is written for Christians who want to have real biblical sound assurance of their salvation before God. And that is the primary focus throughout the whole book. Uh, so it, it is, a, is a book worth spending uh, a good bit of time in. Let's go to chapter 1 of First John. And we'll look at a few verses here that give a wonderful gospel foundation to begin the book so we don't have any doubt about how we are made right with God and what we do when we've sinned. First uh, John 1, 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, do you see there's two different things that John is guarding against here, at least? One is the idea that I am perfect. I am sinless. I don't have any flaws in my life at all. And John says, if you don't think that there's sin in your life, you don't know the Lord. In fact, you're actually calling him a liar. You're, you're, you're not, you're not, you don't understand the, the basics of Christianity if you think that you're without sin. Uh, so that's one major warning on one side. Um, and, and you may be, I don't know that there's a lot of people like that around, but you might know someone who thinks that I'm, I'm basically perfect or I haven't done anything wrong. And John would say, no, no, no. The basics of Christianity is we admit that we've sinned. On the other side, if we are completely owned by sin and completely controlled by sin, we don't know the Lord either. <laughs> so these are the two extreme sides. If I say that I'm absolutely sinless, I don't know, I don't know the basics of the gospel. And if I say that uh, I can live like the devil and still know and love the Lord, he would say, no, that's not true either. So do you see the two guardrails, the two ditches on either side of the road here? So uh, thoughts about the balance here of what John is getting at? I mean, verse uh, 8 is one of the reasons why we, we still say Christians are still sinners mm -hmm. um, is because sin still dwells within us. It's a, it's a principle. Uh, it's tied to our fallen human nature, to, um, to, to these bodies that we live in. Um, and, it, and it is. It's just it's ignorant to think that Christians don't have sin. That doesn't mean, like you said, we're not dominated by it. It's no longer our master. I mean, it's what Paul says in Romans 6, sin will have no dominion over you. It doesn't mean you, you won't have a struggle every day um, and not win as often as you'd like. He's not saying that there's no, um, that there's no more struggle. But I think the, the big thing is that one of the evidences of true, true conversion, true generation, is there is a struggle. As you realize sin's a bad thing, man, I, I've got more of it in me than I thought I did. I don't like what I see, and daily I'm trying to fight that. Daily I'm trying to overcome that, put it to death, walk in a new way. Um, and so at least that, that one ditch of saying, well, you know, once you're a Christian, you're no longer a, a sinner. Like, I, I just, I don't see Scripture leading us to that conclusion. Again, it doesn't mean that we're dominated by sin, but it does mean sin is there. And, it, and one more thing, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys because uh, I've been um, reading through Psalm 19 with my students. We're kind of just working slowly through it in like just a class devotional. And he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults, meaning you and I got stuff wrong with us that we don't even know about yet. And that's why someone who says, well, I, you know, I haven't sinned in however many days, you don't know yourself well at all. You really do not know yourself. You got stuff wrong with you that God just hasn't shown you yet. And I mean, that's not, I'm not trying to like boast about that, but we need to be humble and realize Sin goes deeper than, than we know, and it affects us more than we know. Um, and the more we walk with Christ, I think the more sensitive we're going to get to just how bad sin is. And that would be the reason that verse 9 is mm -hmm. not just when we're an unbeliever, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins. But it's a daily thing for believers. Mm -hmm. that he's, that's a continual thing that we do. We continue to confess our sins and repent and, and uh, race the other way to the cross. So I'll make a distinction here. You've got deliberate, I, I want to be careful, you could, you could quibble with how I'm defining these words, but just try to, try to stick with what I'm trying to say here. You've got deliberate, willful, blatant acts of sin, like choosing to get drunk, 
choosing to sleep around. These very obvious, choosing to commit adultery. These are very obvious, flagrant, blatant acts of sin. Those would also lead to church discipline. These are like the public, obvious, blatant uh, kinds of sin. Okay. On that level, Christians should be getting better as time goes on in, at that level. It doesn't mean we never, never have struggles, but in terms of these, these, these outward, obvious, extremely strong, we, there, there should be improvement over time. doesn't mean we never make any mistakes, but there should be, there should be uh, evident improvement over time. But then there's another layer here. There's the layer of motives. There's the layer of, <laughs> in my best moments spiritually, you know that there's corrupt motives, don't you? At the moment where you're feeling a deep love for the Lord, maybe you're deeply moved over his forgiveness of your sin and you're just overwhelmed by his goodness and suddenly you're thinking, I hope someone notices that I'm feeling this way. I hope someone finds out about this. I mean, all of a sudden, there's, I've been praying for longer than a long time. This is, I've prayed for a long time just now. I should tell someone. <laughs> what, what is that? What, what is this part of us where even in our highest moments of spiritual growth and holiness, we find that the wickedness that is there, the poison that's there, shows itself immediately? And Jonathan Edwards said, your pride, my pride, is like peeling an onion. You, you, you think you defeat a layer of pride in your life, and what's there? There's another layer. You're like, oh, no. Now I'm proud about not being proud. And then you try to get rid of that pride. And then you're really happy you did that. And you're thinking, I'm pretty awesome because I got to level five. And then now, who's done that? That's amazing. I've fought my pride down that far. I'm so good. And then suddenly you're back to level one, right? So there, there's all, there, there's, in terms of like flagrant, just outright, I'm going to go bar hopping tonight until I'm completely drunk. And hopefully there is a, a, a transformation at that level. But on the level of motivation, you're going to fight that until your dying breath. You, you will never have a moment where your deed is actually perfect in motivation. It's never happened. It never will happen. Uh, I mean, just as we are singing songs in a few minutes in that room, I hope the Spirit is at work and He is stirring our hearts with real affection for the Lord. And I will guarantee you, even in moments of highest praise, there will be a mixture of motive and a mixture of pride into what we're doing. And that's why we need to call out every single day, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that's how Paul ends Romans 7. I need help. There is corruption deep within me. This is why a guy like Job, who in many ways was a righteous man, God says he's the most righteous man around. He's a godly man, and that's true. God was, of course, right in saying that. God is the one assessing that. He knows all hearts. But at the end of the book of Job, even though Job was the most godly man on the planet at the time, when Job finally meets God in his holiness, remember? Chapters 38 to the end of the book. What does he finally say? Behold, I am vile. I spoke and I will no longer open my mouth. I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the most godly man around. And that's his realization of the depths of his sin, meeting God. And Isaiah, you could say the same thing. Isaiah is probably mm -hmm. the most godly man on earth at the time he's writing the book of Isaiah. And when he meets God in his holiness, he's calling down the very woes he called on unrepentant Jerusalem. He's calling it on himself. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. I'm dead. That's what he's saying. I'm going to die right now. And the Lord shows him mercy. But anybody who thinks, I basically got the Christian life figured out, and I haven't sinned in about a week, they don't have a clue of what they're talking about. I, 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 sincerely, if you think you have not sinned in days, even at the level of motives, I don't think you even understand the beginnings of what the gospel message is. And I would challenge you to say, go examine the doctrine of God's holiness, his glory, God's law, and ask God to open your eyes and expose the depths of your motives. And I think you will be shocked to see what kind of evil is still down there deep within us and that can often be shaken up in trials or in, in other hardships. Yeah, I think that connects with what Greg's talking about with forgive my hidden sins, Psalm 19. 
and the deceitfulness of sin. We just have to remember, it is so deceitful. So even when it's hiding in there, it's still ready to give us a gotcha. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, a wonderful text. My little children, when John is probably 90 when he's writing this, this always makes me smile. I think everyone was a little child to John when he's writing this. My little children, uh, he's 90-something years old. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Any, any, any thoughts about how encouraging and challenging this little section is? Well, I mean, if, if, you, if you leave chapter one thinking, oh, I don't need to feel too bad about sin, you know, I'm just shot through with it, so, you know, what, what does it matter? Chap, verse, chapter two, verse one, like, totally obliterates that thought. He's like, I'm writing this so that you may not sin. That means don't be comfortable with sin. Don't think it's okay. Don't be at home with it. Don't get, don't, don't, don't let it be your companion that you hang out with. He's like, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, there's provision. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And what does he plead on your behalf? His perfect sacrifice, which perfectly takes away your sin. And that's why, you know, we talk about race to the cross. Jesus is always there ready to forgive, but that never in any way should be taken to think, to, to make us think, well, you know, it, I really don't have to be concerned about sin as much. I mean, it, it took the death of the Son of God for us to be forgiven of our sin, to be declared children of God. If, if that, if, if we linger there, then we will hate sin more and more. We, we can't be comfortable with sin when we realize the only way God accepts us um, out of our sin is because Jesus died to take the penalty for our sin. So, but we race to the cross. He is willing. He is, he is able. He is ready to forgive his people. That's why he came. That's why he died. So when we sin, race to Christ. And then by that grace of forgiveness, man, hate sin more and, you know, be renewed in your determination to fight sin and turn away from it. Yeah, I think from verse... Um three there, and by this we know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. If you flip over a page or two, chapter five, really clear on this, everyone who believes, this verse one, that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I love that that to the true believer, it's not that we have to obey, it's that we get to, that God's freed us up to obey his commandments. And if John is circular in its argument, and it is, he comes back to those two things. What will the true believer do? They will love others, not perfectly, but we will grow in that, and we will work hard at that, and we will enjoy that. That won't be burdensome, and then we'll keep his commandments. Again, not perfectly, as Mark's told us a number of times, it's not perfection, but a change of direction. We'll head that way, and, uh, and I think we'll find it not burdensome at all. Let me just say one more thing about 2, 1, and 2. The, the concept here, we, we do need to get this into our bloodstream to, to live a healthy Christian life. Because here's what's going to happen. Time will come where John says, I don't want you to sin. I'm writing this that you not sin. But when sin happens in our lives, 
Our temptation is going to not know how to respond because we know God hates that, and I just did what God hates, and so how am I supposed to handle this? What am I supposed to do? And if God were just just, and there was no mercy, which he has every right for that to be, he could have done that, this verse would sound a little different. What this verse could sound like if God was just just, he would say this, if anyone does sin, we have a judge before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he will bring down his wrath on us and on our sins and also on the whole world. That's what this verse should say. But listen to the character of God. He's not just just. Jesus is righteous in this verse. But his righteousness, because of the gospel, leads him to advocate for sinners. That is, Christians who are struggling with sin. He advocates for us. We have an advocate with the Father. I mean, that, that's incredible. When you sin, you don't have a judge to be afraid of up in heaven. You have an advocate who is pleading for you before the Father. He's got his blood, and he is pleading his blood, his righteousness before God the Father. And God the Father doesn't need any more convincing because God the Father sent God the Son to die. So the triune God is completely on our side. God is for us, who could be against us. Christ is interceding. The Spirit is interceding. God is not going to turn away the blood and intercession of his Son. So God the Father says, you are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Thank you. So I want to be careful with my Trinitarian language before I go into heresy mode here. Every time I talk about the Trinity, I'm this close to heresy. Just keep that in mind, okay? Let me rewind the tape and say this more accurately. When Jesus presents his blood before the Father, the Father is pleased and satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ, and he is pleased by the intercession of Christ. And Christ is like the ultimate representative. He's like the lawyer who's our defense attorney on our side, and he pleads a successful case every time with his blood and intercession. And the Father is, delights in this and is pleased by it. And, and listen, when we sin, God is not against us as Christians, this is no ticket to sin. Anyone who hears this and says, therefore, I'm going to go sin that grace may abound, does not yet understand the gospel in truth. Mm -hmm. When you hear this, it should make you want to run from sin more than any other truth in the world. That Jesus bled for your sin, he intercedes for sinners, he is, uh, he is before God in his righteousness, and he is pleading for you in his righteousness, should be the greatest motivation in our hearts to say, I don't ever want to displease a God like this. Why would I want to displease a God who is this gracious, this merciful, this righteous, this good? And so gospel-centered can become a watered-down term these days. People mean everything by it, and it almost means nothing. But what we mean by gospel-centered, and I hope a biblically healthy way, is this. When we fail, we race to the mercy of Jesus. We don't clean ourselves up. We don't wait for a certain amount of time to go by as if that changes anything. We run immediately into the arms of Christ, and we say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the Father, uh, the Father is gracious in his embrace of, of his own people. So any other thoughts on this gospel part? You've helped me for a decade or two on this already, Mark, but would you help, under, help us understand what happens if we miss it one way or another? Because we can. Where we feel like, hey, I'm doing pretty well, then there's a trouble there. Or if we feel like, oh man, I'm condemned and I'm just never going to be able to... We, can yeah. you explain that? Because that's really a, uh, I think we can fall into both sides. Yeah, this is definitely not original with, with us, but um, I think it's an important thing to mention once in a while, at least, uh, is if we feel like that we are on our own works and our own obedience doing pretty well, like, I've kind of got it figured out. I've been doing pretty great. I'm kind of awesome. If we start thinking like that, we, we, me we think we're measuring up on our own kind of strength, we are inherently going to become proud hard to tolerate to be around. We're going to become self-righteous. We're going to look down on everyone else who we judge as not being as great as we are. And we're going to become Pharisees, little Pharisees walking around, right? On the other side, if we fail in our own strength and we fall into sin and we, we mess up big time, we're going to feel absolute despair. 
So you, you get this. In, the, in that kind of framework, you either feel a kind of affirmation mixed with pride, like I'm so amazing, or you feel a kind of humility mixed with utter despair. But only the true gospel gives you the affirmation and the humility without the pride and without the despair. Because I am secure, but I'm not secure because of me. I'm secure because of him. So I'm boasting in his righteousness, not mine. So I've got no grounds for pride. It just flattens pride, brings about humility. But what could give you greater assurance than not the almost finished righteousness that I'm trying to work on that's all a big sham, the finished, completed work of Christ? It's finished. We don't walk into a work in progress in the gospel. Pick up a shovel and let's get to work. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus completed the project. It's done. You enter into the rest that Jesus has prepared. So you are completely secure. You're completely loved. You're completely accepted. And it's not because of you. So you're completely humble and you're completely gracious, at least when, we, when we're starting to get it. It, it, it. More and more, those two things will be present in our lives. Well and uh, of course, we're going to fail at that continually. And I just say, like, what you said earlier, along with that emphasis, is even when we sin, God's not against us. He can't be. And again, that never means sin's okay, but it's like, that is so revolutionary right there to, to get that. Like, when we screw up, when we sin, we don't have to wonder if God wants us to come to Him. We don't have to wonder. He is arms wide open. Here I am. Receive what I've given you in my Son let me help you. Like that every single time. Like I, I, that is so mind-boggling amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I, that's just amazing. It's like when your child is hurt or injured. Yeah. That doesn't decrease your love for the child. If anything, it, it, you feel it more than ever at that moment. Yeah. You want to run toward the child. When we are caught up in our sin and we're, we're, we, we've, you know, spiritually speaking, we're, we're in that kind of state, God doesn't recoil from us. If anything, his compassion grows warm. He, he wants us to come towards him. He wants to embrace us. And I think it's so opposite of how we tend to think that it's, it's startling to really think through the kind of grace that we see uh, here. All right, let's look at a little later in chapter 2, verse 15. Now, here's the warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, this is a commitment. You, are, you love it. At the bottom of your heart, we are in love with this present age. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." Now, I don't know if I can prove this, but do you detect an echo of Eve's temptation mm-hmm. in this verse? The world is what? The desires or the lusts of the flesh? The desires of the eyes and the pride of life? That sounds pretty close to Eve's temptation, right? And Adam there too, right? Remember? She looked and saw that the tree was desirable as fruit. It was desirable to make one wise. You will be like God. That's the pride of life, right? All those things. She looks, there's pleasure, there's a desire of the eyes, and there's a pride element. And so you reach out and you grab. That's how the world works. It it appeals to ego, pride, uh, lust of the eyes, uh, pleasure, those kinds of things. And we, we overstep the bounds. But John is telling us here, those things lead to what Adam and Eve found out. They lead to death. So thoughts on the temptation element here. Yeah, guys, just remember it's so deceitful again. The deceitfulness is sin. 
have to remember that we are constantly getting conned, and we need, that's why we need to meditate on the Word day and night, observe to do according to all that's written therein, then it'll make our way prosperous, and then we'll have good success. Um, I'm kind of getting ahead of us here, but verse 17, the whoever does the will of God abides forever. That always kind of, I wondered about that, and as we've spent time in 1 John thinking through like what we're going to talk about today, something clicked because John often talks about you know, if we keep his commandments, you know, I'm not writing to you a new one, but an old one, even though it's new, but it's old. Like what is, if you were to boil it down, and Jerry was, was getting at this earlier too, in chapter 3, verse 23, I think he gives us a very clear picture of what that is at root. Um, he says, and this is his commandment, two things. And this is really a restatement of the great and second commandment, um, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Like, you want a measuring stick. Are you doing the will of God? Are you trusting in and following Jesus? And are you loving his people? Not perfectly, because, oh my God, like we've said, it, it, so much struggle there. But if you're to look at your life and at your you know, deepest motivations and inclinations, are you inclined to Jesus to be your Savior, your hope, your Lord? And are you, do you want to be with his people and, and build them up? Um, because I think sometimes when you talk about doing the will of God and it stays nebulous, mm. it stays so nebulous. What does that actually mean? You know, doing the will of God is, is obeying God's commandments. Like we don't need to say the will of doing will of God and obeying are like two separate things. They're, they're absolutely united. And I think at root, um, what he's talking about here, if you want to know that you're going to abide forever, trust in Jesus and love his people. That's all John's saying. And it's a whole lot more simple than, than we often make it, I think. Mm -hmm. So I guess the test would be, as time goes on, we measure these things in months and years and even decades. As time goes on, when you look back on your life since you became a believer, when you look back, do you see over time an irritation towards what Scripture teaches on a host of issues? Just oh, as time goes on, you prefer what the world says about X, Y, and Z, controversial issue. The world just sounds a whole lot more appealing to me than what Scripture says. And as time goes on, do you feel yourself more and more, your, your emotions, your affections are sympathizing with the world and growing hostile and callous to the Bible? And as time goes on, if those are growing stronger, I'm more sympathetic to the world, less sympathetic to the Bible, more annoyed by biblical teaching, more enjoying worldly ways of talking about things, that is an, a sign of tremendous danger. That's what I get afraid of. I, I can never judge a student's heart. If I teach a student, we all teach students. I, I never want to judge a heart. I never know for sure what's going on, but I can see outward things sometimes. And sometimes you, you start to wonder, is there an actual hostility to the things of God and a real love of the way the world talks about and does things? And you, can, you wonder if over time if that's progressing and, and you pray that that's not the case and you look years later after a student graduates and you hope that they're, that they're walking with the Lord and sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you can sometimes sense these things as time goes on. And that's a question we need to ask ourselves. As time goes on, am I more in love with the truth of God's word and more, uh, frankly, appalled by what the world tries to say about many things? Or is, are, my, uh, are my allegiances reversing on, on that kind of thing? Jerry? That's good. Okay, so now we want to we not uh, run out of time here on this, on this uh, so important verse. So chapter 2, uh, let's get to verse 18. And before I read this, it's pretty self-explanatory, but John is going to say that um, he's acknowledging that there's a final end-time, capital A, Antichrist figure coming. We're not going to talk about that, okay? He, he knows that's coming. But he talks about little a Antichrists, which is really anyone who is opposed to the biblical Jesus or rejecting the biblical Jesus in some way. There are many Antichrists in the world now. He's saying that, he's saying that in the 90s AD. So certainly, it's true today. 
And there's a big lesson here on this whole topic of perseverance right here. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, that final end time figure, the man of lawlessness, so now many Antichrists, plural, have come already in John's day. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now, this verse is so significant, verse 19. I'm just going to put it on the screen by itself here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, I think this is one of the clearest verses in the whole Bible on perseverance of the saints. It's one of those verses where the more you read it, the more you see exactly what's being said. I'll paraphrase it, and you test it here. People were part of local churches in John's day. These were baptized, professing members of churches. They were in Bible studies together. They, you know, they were going to church together. They were taking the Lord's Supper together. These were, they, were, they were of us. They were part of the church. It looked like they were of us. And what did they do? They went out from us. So this group of people, they, uh, they left. They went out from us. So they, they left the visible church. And then John says, but they were not really ever of us. They were not of us. Because if they had been truly of us, they would have continued with us. Continued, persevered. They, if they were really Christians, they would have persevered. They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So I think this text is so clear. If you're genuinely a believer and genuinely part of God's people, the evidence will be that you stay with God's people to the end. And if someone rejects the faith and leaves the church and becomes a little a antichrist, that is rejecting the biblical Jesus, they become against Christ. If that happens, they're leaving the, the people of God prove that they never really were of us to begin with. Jerry, thoughts on this important text? Yeah, it's just a great verse. I do think we have to be careful to say this isn't like North Avenue. You know, if someone would leave our church and no. they would go to another Bible-believing church, that's not at all talking about just leaving one right. church, but that God's church is real people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's God's church is united in God's truth. Um, this goes back to, uh, to the very first part of 1 John um, when he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the, the root of Christian fellowship is the apostolic teaching. Um, and so you know, I, I know we don't have time to do this, but if you want an interesting Bible study, uh, following off of what we're talking about here, uh, go back to John 15, where Jesus talks a lot about abiding in him and his mm -hmm. word and all that, because the same word, the same language is actually used here in chapter two. And in, I think in chapter three, maybe uh, the same word for abiding. And he talks about, uh, just look at uh, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning, what you heard talking about the truth abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the son and in the father. And that word abide is very critical in what John is saying here. And I think it goes back to what Jesus taught in John 15. Don't have time to go there right now, but if you want to follow up a little bit, that'd be a good, just to see uh, some cross references there. Um, but again, you people, the, the, the church is, is united around the truth, like a common confession. That's why what we teach is so important, like getting the content and the doctrine right, because that defines who we are as a people. And so when someone departs from the church, they're also departing from the truth that defines the church. 
because you can't really depart from the people and keep the truth. You depart from one, you're going to depart from the other. It just goes hand in hand. So practically, one more practical thing is, is if you know somebody that's, that's left the church or they're, they, they, they're just not showing up, not participating, or go after them the way Jesus went after the, you know, the shepherd goes after the one lost sheep, go after them. This is, we see that they are not, if they're not of us, um, that's bad news in the end. Can you pray for us, Jerry? Father, we want to thank you for uh, the church that uh, you have given us, not just North Avenue, but um, uh, the church across the world. Lord, what a, a glorious thing you've given us. We pray that we'd grow in our ability to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We uh, pray that you would guard our hearts and minds that we had been challenged by uh, maybe being uh, overly proud um, about how we're doing or maybe... Uh, feeling the condemnation that's uh, not truly from you, but from Satan, we would pray um, that you would help us with the deceitfulness of sin to continually to confess even the hidden sins, um, to repent, uh, to race after you. And Lord, we are so grateful for these clear texts. We ask that you would help us to love each other well and to keep your commandments for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.